Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. You got sunshine blown right up your ass. We want the presidential election. We want it big. So you fill the hall with bloodshed and broken just heard with thoughts about the recent storming of the Capitol is some of MAGA, RoyZimmerman.com's virtual singing, dedicated to, quote, the voters of Detroit, Motown, USA. And coming up on this show is more in the way of what's going down in that regard, as well as coming up down the road. And speaking of that problematic road, our guest on Arts Express right now is actor James LeGros the offbeat star known for drugstore Cowboy, Panther, Point Break, Billions, Hunters, and as Robert E. Lee in this award season standout biopic of Shields Green, Emperor, that resurrected buried history of the revolutionary slave who fought with John Brown at Harper's Ferry. Legro will speak about all of that and more as an alcoholic father raising his estranged son after his mother dies in Buck Run. But what's especially of note in this slice-of-life rural Pennsylvania indie is a political detour off the beaten path for regional filmmaking that is the right-wing trash-talk radio LeGros' inebriated character tunes into while driving around, namely Alex Jones and Nick Fuentes, the latter with reportedly possible ties to cryptocurrency donations funding that Capitol Hill invasion. More about that in a conversation with James LeGros, but first, those radio-on-the-road scenes in Buck Run. And whoever who has the CIA's archives can take advantage of the holes that the CIA opened and hack into your personal things. But think about the people that use iPhones in the business world. Does it make you feel safe that the people that organize our infrastructure, our business secrets, our technology secrets, our military secrets, our political secrets, our finance secrets, they use iPhones, they use Windows, they use Google Android. Is it okay, you know, maybe it's not okay that the CIA and other people can spy on you in your private moments, but what about the people that...
James. Great. Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> and welcome to our show. Oh, thank you. Yeah, sounds great. Well, this is James Legrone. Nice to meet you. Now, I have a question about your character William's radio tastes. One striking element in the film yeah. is his fondness for listening to right-wing radio while driving, including Alex, oh <laughs> including Alex Jones on Infowars and Nick Fuentes on America First Right Side discussing oh, know, conspiracy right? theories. What can you say about that right. and in connection to your character's personality? Uh, okay, so, uh, <laughs> well... First, that very, you know, that's very sharp. I'm glad you, you picked up on that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, uh, one, uh, let me just start at the beginning. So many years ago, I, re I read a book by this guy, uh, John Ronson, and he wrote a book called Them. I probably read this book a decade ago. And it, all these different people, whether they're, you know, left wing, right wing, whatever, they all believe in the other, you know, and that other is part of a vast in, invisible conspiracy. And the book ends with him, with kooky Alex Jones breaking into the Bohemian Grove and getting tossed out. And that was when that, that nut job kind of came on my radar for the first time. And I guess what I believe about people that are conspiracy believers is they're, they're hopeless romantics. Was that your decision to include those radio well, That was the director's oh. choice, but we discussed sort of where he came from and I, you know and I, just for in interest of full disclosure we worked on this picture a while ago you know mm. sometimes little movies take a while to finish and take a while to find an audience and while we were working on this picture it was in the middle of the election mm. and uh you know where we were in central pennsylvania uh you know with the exception of a couple of blue signs outside of bucknell college there wasn't a there wasn't any, there were no blue signs, <laughs> not a one. Um, so it probably reflects some of the feeling of the people in that area. You know, and there were a lot of people on our crew that, that, uh, that voted Republican in that election. So, so there's that anyway, but this thing about, uh, people like to believe in those things. I just find them to be hopeless romantics and they want to believe in an order to the universe. And uh, to me, that's sort of a romantic notion. Uh, all you really have to do is take one look through a telescope, and you'll soon realize there's more disorder than order to things. And uh, But, you know, people want to believe, so it's hard to move them off of that. Uh, anyhow, yeah, I thought that was, thanks for pointing that out. I thought that was interesting. <laughs> and do you think, in connection with that, that your character might have, if, even though that couldn't have been anticipated, he might have been one of those people showing up in D.C.? Well, he might have been, but he probably might have been too drunk to drive there. So that. <laughs> <laughs> and this film, you know, as you've pointed out, this film could not have anticipated any of this or a direct link of Fuent Nick Fuentes to the Capitol Hill invasion and that he had received a nearly quarter of a million dollars donation in cryptocurrency f just prior to that. What are your thoughts about that? Well, I don't really know too much about that. Uh, who's <laughs> Nick, tell me who Nick Fuentes is. Just educate me. I'm a little ignorant. Well, they haven't actually connected him to the riots, but they did say that he that he and some other people did receive donations prior to uh -huh. the you know, right-wing entities oh so. well listen as far as like all that goes i can, they can't round those people up fast enough you know the, the the my main takeaway is i'm sure that there were some pretty you know nefarious characters that had a lot of planning and the, clearly they knew where they were going and there were unmarked offices that a lot of people that work in a capital don't even know that they seem to have information about mm. so there's that group of people then i think you have a whole nother group of people that sort of were like whipped up in the moment by, you know, terrible leadership. But they, they had such a cognitive dissidence in understanding their actions. But some of these people, you know, can you see them afterwards? It's as if, you know, their, their team had won the football game and they stormed the field, which they know they're not supposed to do, and they tore down the goalposts, which they know they're not supposed to do, but they don't really look at it as it that big of a deal. You know, they just kind of don't get the enormity of the action. I'm sure that's part of the story too. Um, but nonetheless, 
you know, these are all adult people that have to be held responsible for their actions. And, you know, a criminal act is a criminal act, and uh, you have to uh, be held to account. So I can't, I can't wait. I, I, I love some of this footage of people being dragged out of airports <laughs> and, oh, the tears, you know. How could you do this to me? Okay. What was it about this story and this character that drew you in? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, well, I would say it, it was somewhat the uh, social setting, first of all. Just This feels like, um, you know, like a group of people whose stories are often overlooked or forgotten. And so the, in, the, in the big picture, that was part of it. And then just secondly, just I don't know why this is, but I'm just a sucker for father and son stories of one sort or another. Yeah. Uh, so it was almost probably those were the two things that that uh, got me interested in the beginning. And speaking of which, Buck Run has a regional flavor as well. And the cultural influence of that rural sense of place on the characters. What are your thoughts about that? Well... You know, I, I feel like, you know, speaking to the sort of the zeitgeist of the moment, I, I feel like we've become very atomized. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think particularly people in the middle probably feel a little forgotten by it all. Mm. And uh, and I think, you know, in this alienation, it's easy to feel misunderstood. And uh, I think that that's, that's a large that's part of the ongoing narrative. Uh, so, you know, I don't know if that really answers your question, but I, I guess, uh, you know, that's that's what, when I, when I look at the picture, it's on my mind when I see it. And you've come out in another film during this past year that has a lot of talk about it during this award season in which you played General Robert E. Lee up against Slave oh, right, Rebel, yeah. Shields Green, and right. John Brown back right. then. What drew right. you to want to play Robert E. Lee? Well, I was just compelled by, not so much that, well, Lee, you know, just for the record, uh, this is this is my position. The first thing Lincoln should have done uh, after the war was over is hang every one of those Southern generals, starting with Lee. So that's just my position on that. Um, but we'll just put that to the side for a second. Uh, it, it was more the idea of that story being told, sort of a true story, I guess. I mean, we don't know for sure if all the events line up exactly in terms of like as a historical document, but, but basically a true story. And I think a lot of these kind of stories are undertold, certainly in American cinema, of African-Americans having this kind of agency in pursuit of their freedom. And so that was the main uh, the thing was I just wanted to be part of a story like this to be told. Actually, I had, originally I had talked to the director about another part, and they hired another wonderful, wonderful actor. Uh, but then they came back to me and said, well, do you want to do this part? And I was like, sure, yeah, sign me up. <laughs> so well, that, that that's sort of the long and short of it. Yeah, well, it's quite a fascinating film. And what are your thoughts about being part of Drugstore Cowboy in 1989? Oh. How you felt about it then, and reflections revisiting it or thinking about it now? Well, Drugstore Cowboy was a kind of a breakthrough film in terms of independent film. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it reached a, a wider sort of audience in the way it got on people's radar. And um, it was a big break for me. I mean, I had worked for, for several years up to that film. It was, I mean, quite honestly, it was the first thing that I was in that was any good. And, uh, you know, that, that stays with you. So I, I think that um, I would say this, though, uh, and I, I, I want to quote uh, somebody who I used to know in the olden days, this guy Keith Morris, who was, the, who was the, one of the lead singers for Black Flag and then formed his own group, The Circle Jerks and performs in a, in a beloved film that was around that same time, Repo Man. And he said, oh, I'm in a cult classic. That means everybody knows about the movie, but nobody made any money. <laughs> well, I, I have those kind of feelings. I'm, I'm glad that the, the film has a place. In, uh, oh, yeah. In, you know, interestingly enough, you know, because this film about, like, you know, addiction, particularly addiction to opiates and... Uh, you know, men of my age right now, 
demographic I'm in, have a better chance of dying of either suicide or a, an opium overdose than they do getting killed in a traffic accident or dying of some di- horrible disease. Mm, yeah. so there's that. Yeah. And what got you on board to be part of the Nazi political crime thriller Hunters as Chief Harry, oh. Chief Harry Grimsby? Oh, right. Well, you know, they just called up and they <laughs> sent the script over and they were like, do you want to be in this? I read that. I don't, uh, I think I just read the first, they only had the first script available at that point. I was like, yeah, this sounds great. You know, and honestly, you know, I mean, come on, Al Pacino? I mean, wow. <laughs> I mean, wow. He, uh, you know, and he still, you know, and what's just so, what's so great is he still got it. You know, he still got his stuff. And uh, so, you know, I love the script, the cast, and, uh, you know, it's always fun to shoot in New York. Uh And the film, getting back to Buck Run, the film kind of of ends abruptly where we don't really know what's going to happen to these characters. What are your thoughts about what happens to them after the movie ends? Or what might happen to them? Well, that's a good question. Uh, you know, I I, I think, uh, you know, this in a way the film is sort of presented as a snapshot in, in terms of a, somebody's transition. And then I think at the end, you know, our young our young hero is sort of is sort of left with like this is what it looks like. You know, it looks like this house and this bed in this place and in this time. You know, and I'm sure they, you know, as far as in terms of like a father and son, they struggle, uh, you know, for all of the classic reasons. But, you know, as as most of us have to do in our life, you know, we don't always get to make the rules. We just have to sort of like deal with the, deal with the landscape as it presents itself. Mm. Now, I see a film you're working on right now, Earthlings about two Mexican day laborers who are unexpected guests at their employer's intimate dinner party. Uh, Do you by chance play the employer? No, I don't play the employer. I play (laughs) another one of the employer's friends who's also a guest at this dinner party that a lot of alcohol gets consumed and then a lot of stupid stuff gets said. Uh, I would say that, you know, I haven't seen the picture, so it's hard for me to comment on it. Uh, But my... uh, my friend uh, and colleagues, uh, uh, Kelly Reichardt, uh, was, was friends with the director and asked if I would help out and help Stephen and, and work on the picture. And, and Todd Haynes, they're also the executive producer. They, they were like, Can, he's a good guy and help us out. And I was like, well, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, so that's, that's what I can tell you about that. Uh, is this a film about racism at all? Well, it's, as as I read the script, it seemed to be. Yeah, you know, I thought it was. Yeah, but uh, but how it turned out, it's hard for me to say. Right. Like I said, I haven't seen the picture yet. Yeah. Okay. I just have one final question. Why should? Oh, sure. <laughs> why should people go see Buck Run? Well, because it's a fantastic film, and <laughs> it's a an area of, of stories that aren't being told with the kind of prominence. Uh, that they ordinarily would have, and, you know, and it's a great opportunity to see what's happening out on the frontiers of independent cinema. Mm. If you care about such things, yeah. Okay, well, thank you so much, James Lugrook, for calling right. into All our right. show. Oh well, what a pleasure! Thanks for having me on. Okay, bye. All right, take care. Bye. Handbook Run is screening online, and next up on Arts Express, here to give us her perspective on the mass storming of Capitol Hill from an insider's emotional perspective as former President Obama's press secretary, along with where do we go from here, and with their threatened return of more violence, and what would she have done if confronted with those rioters in the hallways of what's become referred to as Capitol Hill, is Joanna Masca. Good morning. This is Johanna Masca calling. Hi. How are you? Oh, thank you so much. I'm I'm doing well, all things considered. What a what a tough uh, couple weeks we've got for the country right now. 
Now, as someone who served under the Obama administration as a press secretary, and with your inside knowledge of the White House and the U.S. government, what unique perspective and insight can you bring to what just transpired with the mass storming of what is now being called instead Capitol Hell? Oh, goodness. Um, it is really a pleasure to join you this morning. Um, I actually was director of press advance. So my job was setting up all of the logistics to make sure that the press could cover President Obama um, throughout his administration. So I worked to um, set up all the NATO summit uh, appearances, the G8 summit appearances, the Capitol appearances. So anytime the president goes outside of the White House, there are significant logistics that are prepared um, to make sure he is safe, to make sure that he has the ability to communicate with the American people. And unfortunately, what we saw was President Donald Trump take advantage of these resources that are meant to allow an American president to communicate, to communicate with his supporters, again, false information that he had been elected instead of President uh, elect Biden, who has won the election fair and square. He told people that he actually won. He told them to go tell Republicans to do the right thing. He told them the Democrats would never do the right thing. You know, people truly believe there is a segment of America that truly believes that he won the election. And this is dangerous. So what happened was all of these people who completely believed that they were in the right rushed the U.S. Capitol, and for the first time in our nation's history, a Confederate flag breached the American Capitol and really like caused the chaos that Americans saw unfolding. So, you know, I, I come to it with a perspective. I, I grew up, um, my family are Republicans, and I'm a Democrat, and I watched this division and this division is toxic. You know, most Americans actually agree that we want a safe and secure environment for our kids and that we want opportunity for all Americans to reach the American dream. And instead of talking about where we can come together and solve a global pandemic and move America forward, we are in this toxic moment that has been brought on no less by the President of the United States of America. And I think there is no other option than Republicans and Democrats coming together now to do something about the danger that is this president, his rhetoric, and his propaganda that he's been allowed to spew for too long. And what would you say is your reaction to those events personally? And what do you think you would have done if you were present there at the time? Or what you would have said to those writers if confronted by any of them there? Yeah. It um, it makes me sick. Um, you know, I I co-host uh, Pod is a Woman with uh, two of my former colleagues from the White House, Darian Page and Alejandra Campaverdi, and we were watching it together because we were recording. And Darian is an Iraq War veteran. Um, she's a combat vet and uh, served as um, uh, doing military engagement for President Obama. And we were watching it unfold, and we were going, where is the National Guard? Where are all of these entities that should be there securing the Capitol? And, you know, why right now, when this, this crowd is descending upon the Capitol, are we not seeing more um, to stop them? And, you know, it, we then later, of course, learned that it was a veteran who died in the Capitol, the woman who, who died. And, you know, it's just so painful because for me, I have to believe that, that these people really think that they are doing the right thing. And that is the scariest thing for me is that we're at such a disinformation and, and divisive point in which we're really only seeing what the algorithms are presenting to us that, that a, a veteran thought that the only thing they could do to save America is to storm the Capitol for really a president who has been a propaganda art artist and who has lied to the American people. And I think that, you know, I, I called on the White House Correspondents Association to really step up um, and demand accountability. You know, there's a, a long history of a mutual accountability of the press and the president. 
Um, and we're not seeing that. We're seeing President Trump, he's still delivering videos that are going out um, to his followers, you know, without, with any, without any context, that we haven't seen this, this being recorded. We don't know when it's being recorded. And so, you know, right now, I think, is a time for everyone to really step up their moral obligation, their ethical responsibilities um, to their jobs, and, you know, to really try to do the best thing. And I, I can tell you, you know, I am so lucky I worked with a president who never asked me to do something illegal. But we are talking to one of our friends who did work in the Trump administration. She was a sorority sister of mine at the University of Kansas. And we went different ways. She went and worked for President Trump. She had worked for President Bush. And I worked for President Obama. And she actually reached out to me and said, I'm so sorry, Johanna, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry I didn't believe you. And, you know, I don't want that. Like, I don't want someone apologizing to me, but I do want people to see the truth. And I think that the Republicans who have allowed this to fester in the Republican Party really are the ones who can... Um, get us back on the right course because there's been such distrust sowed in Democrats by calling us socialists. And what would you have said to those rioters if you were there at the time and were confronted? My family, I have Trump supporters in my family. And it is really difficult to have a conversation because they fervently believe the disinformation that's come out of this president. And so I have to be honest that in those very tense moments where, um, you know, yeah, it is really difficult to have a conversation with people who so fervently believe the disinformation that this president has put forward. And so I have throughout this administration, at the very beginning of President Trump's administration, I was a fellow at the Dole Institute for Politics at the University of Kansas. And I said, we need to reach across party lines. We need to talk to people who believe that Donald Trump is the answer. And we need to say, you know, here's the, here's the truth, right? That yes, America's uh, economy is changing so rapidly that, you know, we have to come together to try to solve problems for billions of people. We have to protect people's rights, that climate change is actually real. And that if we actually embrace our diversity, this is what's our potential. But unfortunately, in these moments where the president of the United States has used the power of the presidency as a bully pulpit to call members of the media the enemy of the people when they've held American power accountable for years, those are the moments where people just don't want to listen. They want to speak. And so I have to be honest, if I was confronted in that moment, I, I probably needed, I would have listened. I would have had a lot to say, but I don't know right now um, in that moment if that was the conducive moment for a conversation. And, and that's a problem because people truly believe that Donald Trump was elected president. And that's why I would say, you know, as much as the onus is on all of us as leaders to listen and to come together, I believe the onus right now is on the Republican Party to finally tell the truth because they have known for a long time that President Trump has said hateful, has said awful things, and they are seeing those effects in real time because they, too, were sheltering in place at the Capitol. Now, there are also reports detected online that the rioters are planning to return. What do you think will transpire? I am so worried about these next two weeks. I was so sick on Saturday, and I called my mom. And, you know, my mom had just been with my uh extended family in the Midwest the night before. And I said, can you tell me what they believe? And she said, they believe that Donald Trump was elected president. And I said, you know, this is to me so scary. Like people I love believe this. And um, look, like the the best case scenario would be if we can 
if we can have Republicans and Democrats alike come out and say, you know, this is this is absolutely an impeachable offense. And and truly, I do believe I, I I've heard the argument, oh, it's such a divisive time. It was a divisive time before. It is divisive. But we have to stand up for law and order and law and order. Like if we want to talk about law and order, they law and order does not support what this president of the United States did. And Republicans and Democrats can do that. I think people of all different backgrounds need to do that. We need to tell the truth. And so, you know, I I think that law enforcement is now in a, um, you know, they are going to have to do a, a very good job. And honestly, most of the people who are at the Capitol, they posted it on social media. We should be reaching out. We should be arresting every single one of them because they committed an illegal act by breaking through the Capitol grounds and then, you know, going up to our Capitol. It, it doesn't matter if they were the ones sitting in Nancy Pelosi's desk. They broke the law. And I think that law enforcement needs to make sure that these people are held accountable or it will happen again. And I fear for my friends in the press. I fear for my friends in state capitals. I fear for people like ordinary people because, unfortunately, this rhetoric has gone so far that the next two weeks is a precarious moment. And I'm, I'm afraid that if the Republicans don't hold President Trump accountable now, that he will take this show on the road. You know, the thing about impeachment is if we impeach him, it actually affects his post-presidency, um, you know, the, the, uh, what he has to support him, his post-presidency support. Um, both in terms of, you know, pension and office and um, security and all of these things. He has taken the power of the presidency and used it to sow disinformation in our country. And I, I understand the point that it is a divisive time, but it has been a divisive time for a long time. I saw people say terrible things about President Obama. So we've got to get to a point where we start respecting each other and not calling each other the devil because we're not they're they're not we're not we're not socialist devils you know we are americans and what does that mean that's what we have to figure out in these next two weeks what is the heart and soul of our nation and speaking of law enforcement disturbing as well as footage that has come to light of some police presumably trump supporters actually allowing the rioters in through side doors. What is your reaction to that? And police officers and even one police chief being investigated around the country for being part of the mob charging, as well as some politicians? This is the thing about law and order, right? You don't have your own laws. You don't have your own order. It needs to be fairly executed. And so, um, you know, I think... Power is a precarious thing, and you have to hold power accountable for any time that they do something that's wrong. And if law enforcement was at all culpable in domestic terrorists breaching the Capitol and, um, you know, defiling the Capitol, um, you know, taking a Confederate flag in the Capitol for the first time in our nation's history, if if there are people who are responsible, if they are law enforcement, they didn't do their job. And so you have to hold them accountable. And that is the that is the root of what is right now so important is if someone uses their power and they shoot someone who's innocent, that is an abuse of power. If someone is, is you know, using their power and they're allowing someone to do something that's illegal, that is an abuse of power. And we've got to get back to that, that line of where power and the law are actually like working together for a more just society so that people can follow the law, that they can thrive in jobs with some social safety nets that allow them the education, the health care, and where we can work together to solve problems Okay, well, thank you so much, Joanna Maska, for calling into our show. Oh, it was such a pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much. Wonderful, wonderful. And Darian and Alejandra are also awesome, and I can't wait for them to do more of this. So whatever uh, whatever we can do for you, and uh, likewise, I'd, I'd love to, to stay in touch. Oh, great. Okay, thanks so much. 
Thank you so much. Have a great one. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. And Joanna Masca's Pot is a Woman show can be heard at radio.com. And now on Arts Express. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. Last week, I drove down to the wonderful Garden for Sculpture, an outdoor art museum in Hamilton Township, New Jersey. I bought my time tickets online, stuffed some COVID masks into the pocket of my heavy winter coat, and jumped into the car. So come along with me on this little adventure, and you can join me virtually as I head down the highway and tour the Garden for Sculpture on location. I'm about 90 minutes from Casa Shalom. I drove here, but I'll tell you, when I hit the New Jersey Turnpike, got to be one of the most ugliest places in this country, in this world, even one of the ugliest places of the netherworld. I mean, you are faced with oil tanker barrels, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 of them in an area, and then gas tank barrels, and then you've got the cell phone towers and the power lines and the power grids. I mean, it's just a dystopic nightmare. The turnpike itself is really a treat because about every 10 miles you get this big brother laser message which says, put your phone away and drive. And the other thing is, the service areas. Well, you have the Molly Pitcher service area, the Thomas Edison service area. You know, I can just imagine that while Thomas Edison was trying to figure out the light bulb, he probably thought, I can't go on, but no, no, if I don't go on, if I don't discover the proper filament for the light bulb, I won't have a service area in New Jersey named after me. Well, here I am and uh, I'll meet you on the other side. It's a fairly cold winter day today. It's about 45 degrees, but I am gonna be outdoors the whole time, and I'm not a great outdoors person. I don't love the cold, but I thought this would be a better time to do it than uh, as it gets later in February, so let me see how this goes. Okay, so now I've got my mask on. I've downloaded the map. And they're yeah, greeted by a couple of enormous statues from different paintings. It's a little bizarre. I mean, it's, it's less cultural center than maybe Disneyfication. But at the same time, it is kind of nice, too, because there's a lot of acreage here. And it's quiet. There aren't very many people here. I haven't seen too many people so far. So let's see. I'm a bird watcher and I hear a couple of interesting birds, so I'm gonna check those guys out. Yeah, looks like some purple finches there. They got the sparrow look with the little red coloring near their necks and heads. It's really a nice setting here. It's very, very open. And even though I have a map, I'm not bothering with it. I'm just enjoying wandering around and just going where my feet take me. And here's an interesting stone wall. It looks like it could represent the Ten Commandments or something. Let's see, what is it called? It's by Walter Duesenberry, and it's called Rochetta, and it's made of Turkish gray trava. I see, this is where we need our glasses. It's made of Turkish gray travertine, 1983. A lot of the sculpture I'm seeing right now is generally abstract sculpture. I can't say that's something that personally appeals to me too much. I'm more of a portraiture guy. But I like the idea that they're in this very interesting setting. As you go around, <laughs> there's, there's hidden in this little garden a table where there are three men holding cards uh, playing poker or bridge. They've got beer bottles and beer cans on the table and money on the table. Ah, I see. There's an empty seat as if they're waiting for somebody. It's called Fourth Hand. You may touch this sculpture with care. Seward Johnson, Fourth Hand, 1991 cast bronze. 
it's a lot of fun. There are poker chips on the table here and the cards, which are really beautifully done. Really beautifully done. I mean, they are bronze, I guess. That's what they said. You would never know that. It looks like ceramic and they're beautifully detailed. I mean, I'm looking at one guy is holding the nine of spades and the nine of hearts and the nine of clubs and the ace of diamonds and the ace of clubs, a full house. And uh, all those cards look really realistic. Now, the, the player to the left of the guy with the full house is holding Trip Kings. He's about to get two cards, and he's about to get the Ace and King of Spades from the dealer. That's not going to uh, beat the full house. And the dealer's cards are face down on the table, so we don't know what they are. I wonder if I'm a, I can pick them up. They're probably fastened down, but let me see. The dealer has a great cigar in his mouth, too. Yeah, well, all the props at the card table are very securely glued down. Every ashtray, every poker chip, a pipe. And they're just some wonderful little touches that I love about this. He's got the four wooden chairs, you know, the foldable chairs. And each player has their little jacket slung over the back of their chair. It's, it's very, very realistic. You know, some of them are wearing jeans. Some of them are wearing, one of them is wearing slacks in the folds and the jeans are terrific. It's, it's really well done. This reminds me sort of the stuff that, well, I'm going to forget his name. Do I, I want to say Dwayne Hansen. Is that the guy that did the stuff that they showed at the uh, Whitney many years ago? And more and more abstracts. Not my thing, really. Here's another tall structure, sort of reminiscent of a vase of flowers. It's about 15 feet or so. It's green and it's thin at the base and then you've got four aluminum or steel kinds of stems coming out and then there are green petals, five petals on each of one, two, three, four, five flowers. Let me see if there's a name on that. Ah, there's some identification. It's by James Searles. And it's called Standing Vase with Five Flowers. It's cast bronze and stainless steel. 2011. Yeah, I'm seeing a little bird creeping up the tree. I can't exactly make it out yet what it is, but from the way it's creeping, I'm going to guess a nuthatch. Whoops, there he goes. Bye-bye. Yeah, I, it's, it was a nuthatch. I saw its, its white belly and its gray back and the way that it was creeping. That's a nuthatch. <laughs> There's a little canopy of, of cedar trees and hemlock trees here. And it looks like there's a couple hugging on the ground, but it's just another, another one of those sculptures that are really very realistic. It's a woman and a man, and they're both wearing sunglasses and they're both in jeans and kind of dirty shirts. They look like they've probably fallen asleep here and that they've been here for a few hours. Oh, and there's a, isn't that a great touch? To the left of them, there's an old moldy physics textbook, you know, like they were graduate students or something, right? And they, they just landed out here and they just got too, too tired. And he's got his head on his leather jacket underneath. And I'm, I'm sure this is the same artist, the uh, Seward Johnson, but I don't see a, an identification here. There's kind of a, a voyeuristic aspect to it when you're taking pictures of them because you literally do stumble upon them. It's very clever the, where they're put. And on this day, which even though it's winter, it's quite sunny. So if you're trying to take photos, there are some strong shadows right now. Uh, you have to be careful not to get your shadow into the picture, which is interesting in itself. So the voyeur becomes viewed also. Oh, and as I'm looking up, I, I see a hawk flying above. And I am also looking at two women cast in bronze by Leander Fink. And it's called Seated Figure from Women in the Sun, 1988. And well, it's what it says on the tin, right? It's a woman seated and looking upwards. And she looks like she's really enjoying that sun. And then on the other side, by the same artist, is another woman, and she's standing, and she's hugging herself, and she's also got her face lifted up towards the sun, just taking it in. 
There is a lot of abstract sculpture here. I mean, I can appreciate form and those kinds of questions, but like I say, it's not my taste. I sort of wonder at the tremendous efforts that have to be put into making a steel and stone and cast iron sculpture 20 feet tall that's only about form. It bothers me a bit, but I'm, I'm not going to take on that battle here. And now we're approaching the Monet Bridge, which is supposed to be a recreation of the Monet Bridge. Ah, this is a nice touch by the Monet Bridge. There's a little wooden bench, and on the wooden bench, it looks like somebody left their little blue-purple French cloche. But it's a carefully placed prop for atmosphere. Uh, I wonder if it's glued down. Probably. Let's see. No, it's not glued down. Let's see if it says anything in it. <laughs> it says Old Navy. Uh, oops, there's a... Here's a little bird hopping around. What is that? Catbird. They like the low bushes. And you can tell them because they're gray, but they have a nice black cap. And they're they're largish. You know, they're like the size of a, a robin. A big lake. Huh. I didn't expect to come across this. Oh, here's another. <laughs> Got fooled again. It's a single guy. And he's looking at what's going on in the lake. Hmm. Nice. He's sitting down on the dirt, right on the ground. He's wearing a, a wonderful wool-like sweater. Of course, the, the sweater is made of whatever material the rest of the statue sculpture is made up of. Again, it looks like it could be ceramic or fiberglass, but I think the ones that did have a description said bronze, and it's kind of hard to believe. This guy just looks fantastically real in the details. He's got these scuffed up sneakers on, which are really great. The brown sweater that he's wearing, it kind of has this cable stitching on it, which is just fantastic and ribbing on it, which is really realistic. And then nearby, not too far, there's a set table with uh, a very, very nice breakfast, it looks like, of breads, of some nice Chateau Margaux wine, wine cups for four, some curls of butter with some very nice looking baguette uh, slices and rolls and uh, napkins and all the silverware on a round table with a tablecloth on it. And there are flowers in the middle, some blue irises and then some yellow and red tulips in the middle in a blue vase. So this guy, I don't know, hes I think he's part of this sculpture. I think it's all one piece. He looks very pensive looking at the lake. Maybe the three others have gone off or, no, I know what it is. Nobody's shown up because none of the wine has been drunk, even though they're in the glasses and everything is as he laid it out, evidently. So he's waiting <laughs> by the lake for his three friends. And actually, as our little sculptured man is looking out on the lake, there are a flock of, oh, let's see, 10, 20, 30, 40 Canada geese out there floating. So he's looking at the the Canadian geese. And the Canadian geese are real. They're not sculptures. <laughs> Uh-oh, another glade and some more characters to venture upon. It's called Déjeuner Déjà Vu, 1994. And it's four characters. There are three in the foreground and a, a woman in the background. Uh, two men and a woman in the foreground. So in, let me describe the foreground first. So there's a picnic basket with all kinds of fruits and potatoes and uh, looks like figs there and some squash. And it's lying turned over on the ground. And they've obviously had a picnic, these three people in the foreground. But as you come into this area, the two men are talking with each other. But the woman, who's completely nude, is looking in my direction, right? So she, she knows she's being seen. 
and all her clothes are in a pile to the left of her. So now, if I walk around this little trio, oh, look at this, isn't this funny? So behind the trio, <laughs> there's a book, and in the book is a photo of what this statuary is trying to represent. And it's, uh, it's called Les Déjeuners sur... I don't speak French, so I'm gonna mangle this. Les Déjeuners sur le Hab. L apostrophe H-E-R-B-E. I have no idea who that's from, but it's clearly a painting that's being reproduced. If you compare this setting and the statues with the photo of the painting, it's a pretty darn good match. So I guess in a way this reminds me of the theatrical tableau vivant that used to be the rage in 19th century America and in Europe, you would go to the theater and a group of actors would just pose in the positions of famous paintings and, you know, and the backdrops would add to that. But that was a, a huge popular entertainment. Oh my, I'm still walking along the lakefront, but on the other side of the lakefront, I'm looking at a, a stone sign that says Forest of the Subconscious. Dare I go in? You know what? I, I, I'm not prepared to have my subconscious probed at this point. Life is hard enough without people accessing my subconscious. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass it by. Well, I've been here for now uh, just about two hours, and I could easily spend more time here. But in summary, I'd say definitely a nice way to spend a, a morning or an afternoon. You can certainly take the kids, and I think they would be entertained in their own way also. Like I say, I'm not a big fan of the abstract sculptures, but, you know, that's just a matter of taste. But I still found plenty here to enjoy. I'm just smiling to myself because I just repassed that couple on the ground. So here I am. This was a report for Arts Express exclusive. Grounds for Sculpture in Hamilton Township, New Jersey. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. That's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station. Change again, change and go alone.